Safe. How are y'all doing? Good. All right. So Mary and Joseph in the Bible had a baby. What was his name? Jesus. Very good. What was his last name? God. Okay. I'll take that. Um, so they gave him, or God sent an angel to tell his mom what he wanted his name to be. And the angel said, his name will be Jesus. And Jesus means God saves, right? Jesus means God saves. We also call him the Christ. What do you think that means? Jesus the Christ. What would that mean? Any wild guesses? I mean, God would be a good one. So here's what it means. It means that he was God's chosen one. The word means that he was God's chosen one. He was anointed for a job. The job was to save God's people from their sins. Here, I want you to listen to this verse. Are you ready? All right. I've got to put my old man glasses on. All right. So, Jesus means God saves. Christ means that he's the anointed one, the chosen one. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world. Listen to this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what do we do differently at Christmas time? What do we put up? And what do you put on the Christmas tree? Ornaments, Ornaments and what else? Lights. A star. a star, because there was a star above Bethlehem when Jesus was born. And your house might have lights on it. There's, we put up lights at Christmas time. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And those lights remind us that God loves us, that he gave us his one and only son so that we could be forgiven. Are you making floor angels? Dust angels? Beautiful. Can I pray for you angels before you go to Hope for Kids? Dear God, thank you for these precious children. Thank you for the gifts that they are to our lives and to our church. We pray your blessing on them as they study more of your word and hope for kids and help each of us to remember this Christmas season that you, Jesus Christ, are the light of the world. Help us to live in that light and life forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time in Hope for Kids. Apparently they just can't stand it back there in our children's ministry. It's just torture. All right. Very good. Well, why don't we say a prayer, and then we'll get into God's word a little bit this morning. Let's bow our heads. God, our Father, we come before you as your children uh, in search of your your word, your grace, your truth for our hearts and for our lives. And Lord, as we do that, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts, 
that we might be more free to encounter you here through your word today. We lift to you our disappointments and failures, and we thank you for the forgiveness and grace that are ours in Jesus Christ. We lift before you those relationships in our lives that are strained, and we pray for peace and reconciliation where it is needed. We ask that you would be with those whom we know and love who are sick or recovering from medical procedures or facing uncertain diagnoses, and we lift those loved ones before you who are in need of your healing graces, and we thank you that you are there for us in these times. Lord, we lift before you this country and our leaders at every level of government elected and appointed, and we pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before them. We lift up our men and women in uniform who serve to protect and defend our freedoms, and We give you thanks for their service, and we pray your protection over them, especially those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. And Lord, for those who have returned home changed as a result of their service and sacrifices, we pray that you would pour out your healing upon them, mind, body, and soul, that you would use us, your people, to minister that grace and healing to them, and that you would bless your church here at Hope, and around the world. We think of all the voices that are being lifted in praise to give you glory this day, and we just pray your blessing on the movement of your spirit in this world. We lift before you those churches that we are connected to through our denomination and through our missions giving, and we pray your blessing over them. We lift up Paul and Elizabeth Branch in Guatemala, John and Diane Davis in Laredo, Texas, Miguel and Tatiana Broche in Camahuani, Cuba, at our sister church. Patchy and Marilyn Quesada in Havana, Cuba. Robbie and Joyce Hamd in Beirut, Lebanon. And Monica and Benjamin Bailey in the Middle East. And we just pray your blessings over those works that we are connected to uh, through our missions support. And we lift up the church plants here in Texas that that are going on right now in our denomination in Katy, in New Braunfels, in Austin, and now in Dallas. And we just pray your blessing over those young works of your spirit. Lord, that your word would continue to go forth through the mouths of your people and that it would not return to you empty. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we are in a series of messages Uh, this Advent season, this time of year leading up to Christmas, and we're looking at the names in the Bible that are given to Jesus, to the Son of God. And we're going to look at at different uh, titles and names that are given to to Jesus uh, throughout this season. And we looked last week at the name Jesus itself, which is a Hebrew, comes from a Hebrew word that just means God saves. And we looked at the meaning and importance and implications of that name. And this week we're taking up uh, what's technically a title and not a name, uh, but it's the, the word Christ or the Christ, depending on how you or where you encounter it. Um, and we'll talk about the meaning of this word and, and what it, uh, why it's important and why the Bible chooses this title for Jesus. Um, and I'm going to read 
a, a wide variety of excerpts from various places in the Bible to try to get a, our, our minds and hearts, really, around this idea of Jesus being the Christ. And just, you know, basic remain, reminder, uh, his mom and dad were not Mary and Joseph Christ, right? This isn't his last name. Uh, he didn't have a brother named, you know, Doug Christ or anything like that. Um, he, he did have brothers, the Bible says, but uh, their, their last names would have been something like of Nazareth, okay? And uh, so Jesus is born to a virgin. An angel appears to her and tells her what his name is going to be. That name is Jesus, which means God saves. And then... As he is, as Jesus is introduced in each of the four Gospels—that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—he um, is referred to very early in each of those works, and we'll, I'll show you the first occurrence in each Gospel of the word Christ. Well, let's do that now. All right. So Matthew just comes right out of the gate with it in the first verse of the first chapter of his Gospel, and he just says, "This is the book." of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and this is part of a, a genealogy that he goes into. Um, and uh, it's just important to notice that all four of the Gospels, very early in their introduction as to who Jesus is, call him the Christ. So Mark one one again, right out of the gate, first sentence, uh, Mark, the author Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you have two gospel authors who agree that the very first sentence should include both the name Jesus and the title Christ. Then Luke holds us in suspense for a chapter and ten verses. Um, but in chapter two of his gospel... We find these words, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Who is, yeah, yeah, Christ the Lord. So, again, you have this idea of salvation linked to the the title of the Christ. He is also called Lord here. So we have Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham, uh, Savior and Lord, all in the early sections of the first three Gospels. And then in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17, is the first time he uses or invokes the title Christ for the name of Jesus. And he says, John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have... Um, um, so, any questions so far? Like, this is, this is clear, right? Like, the gospel authors are all nailing this title to the name of Jesus, that he is the Christ. And so, then in the Gospel of John, I want to read one verse in chapter 1, verse 41. It says this, uh, and this is talking, this is when he's, He's calling his 12 disciples to to him, to follow him. Uh, And they're talking about how they 
found him and, and told each other about him, and this is one of those encounters, and, and the, the person is one of the disciples. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then John goes ahead and, and translates for his readers what that word means in their native language. He says, which means Christ. So those parentheses are actually in the Bible. Those aren't my parentheses. Those are, those are in the scriptures. So when, when uh, Peter, maybe, Andrew, is introducing Jesus to his brother Simon, yeah, I think it's Andrew, anyway, doesn't matter, he calls him, he says, we found the Messiah. And then John, for his readers, says that means Christ. Well, let's get into that. Let's just talk about the basic meaning, what's going on here, why these two words are used together. So, in English or Spanish, we, we say Christ or Cristo, right? That's the title. Um, in Greek, it was Christos, so we get our rendering of Jesus the Christ from the Greek language. But in Hebrew, that same word, if you translate the Greek word Christos into Hebrew, you get something that sounds like Mishcha or Mashiach. And that is the word, once you put that word, just use English characters to write it out as we would say it, uh, wrongly, but that's okay, um, you get the word Messiah, or in Spanish, Messias. So, Messiah is the Hebrew word that means anointed one. Christ is the Greek word that means Messiah. Therefore, Christ means the anointed one. The Christ is the anointed one. Now, that brings up all kinds of questions like, anointed with what? Why? Who does the anointing? What's going on here? Why is this so important? And so we'll, we're going to jump back uh, to the beginning of our Bible, and we're going to look at the book of Exodus, chapter 28, verse 41, and there is an anointing here that God gives to Moses to apply to his brother Aaron and all of their descendants, and it's the anointing that will designate which members of Israel will be consecrated to be in the priesthood, who will be serving at the altar and elsewhere in the temple for the, for the service of, the, of God, for, for bringing together the sacrifices for atonement and forgiveness and thanksgiving and all the other uh, practices that the priests were engaged in. So this is where it all begins. And God says to Moses, You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. So this is how, um, in the Old Testament, in ancient Judaism, there would be a, a service of anointing for the priest. They would be set apart. Oil would be poured onto their head. It would run down their face and their beard and drip on the floor. This was a messy religion. Um, and uh, that's how everybody knew 
that this person was now set aside to serve in the office of priest. They would have been called anointed ones because they had been ordained to office by the, with the anointing of oil. All right. There were three offices that involved anointing in the Old Testament. We're going to see this is really exciting. Like what's happening next, just try to remain calm. Because what you're about to see is all three ordained offices represented in the same verse. Ooh. All right, we're going to jump to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 34. And here we will find a guy named Tzadok, and he's a priest, and we'll, we'll see what happens. And let Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, there anoint him king over Israel, then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. So when, Sol- when any king was crowned in Israel, there was also an anointing. And who are the other two offices that are there to consecrate that person? The priest and the prophet would come together, and they were both anointed Old Testament offices, and they would anoint or set apart the king. Then you have this sort of protected position that the king now enjoys. You can't just assassinate your king in Israel because he has the anointing of the Lord upon him. Bad things will happen to you if you do that. Now, later in Israel's history, it all breaks down, and there are many assassinations of kings, but that's not important right now. Um, And that's what we call humanity breaking into the divine plan. It, it, It goes bad. It gets ugly. But here we have the prophet the priest, and the king, all as anointed offices in the Old Testament. This is important because Jesus, when he is called the Christ, the anointed one, he is not designated as to which of those three offices he is being set apart for. So, in other words, what we will see just momentarily, that he is going to represent all three of the ordained, anointed offices of the Old Testament. He's going to, better word, fulfill the three offices of the Old Testament. All right, so we've got the three anointed offices of the Hebrew Bible, prophet, priest, and king, and I want to jump and first look at this idea of Jesus as prophet, and we're going to go to Matthew thirteen fifty-seven. And Jesus is talking to a group of people in his hometown, and they get upset with him because of what he's saying. He's basically implying that he has the authority to forgive sin and that he has God's anointing or, or presence or power or authority. And it says in Matthew thirteen fifty seven, and they took offense at him for claiming this, this level of authority. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. So what's important here is not necessarily Jesus' indictment upon his hometown, but the fact that he refers to himself as a prophet. He, by implication, is saying, I am here to fulfill the office 
of prophet. Now, what is that office? Um, a prophet, I'm going to use Deuteronomy 18.18 18 as my basis for saying this, um, but a prophet is someone who represents God's word to God's people. A prophet is someone who represents God's word to God's people. So, important to note that each of us are called into this office of prophet as Christians in particular ways. Uh, Like maybe you're reading the Bible to your kids at bedtime or whenever, right? That is you stepping in in Christ to to fulfill the office of prophet for that child at that moment. You are representing God's word to them. You're also representing God's word to them when you go to work, when you come home, when you go to sleep, when you get up, uh, you are it, right? No pressure, but you are representing the office of the word to someone else in your life. We all are called to do this. Jesus, um, <clears throat> excuse me, did this, and he did this in an ultimate sense. I want to take you real quick to John, the Gospel of John again, chapter 1, verse 14. And John says something uh, incredibly uh, significant. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus is not just a prophet in the sense that he's representing God's Word to God's people. He is. But he is also the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament office of prophecy by actually becoming flesh. By he, he is the word of God. He becomes human, and he sort of explodes this office of prophecy uh, beyond its Old Testament meaning. So he takes what was once uh, relegated to a small class of citizens who were anointed as prophets concentrates it in himself, and then explodes it out into all of you and all of his followers. So that is the exploded office of prophet through Jesus Christ. You are called to to hear, as Jesus represents God's word, his spoken word, you are called to hear Christ's call to you personally, to come into his family, to be a part of his kingdom, and to take on yourself that office of prophet in the various ways in your own life that you are called to represent God's word to others through how you live, through what you say, uh, through the ways in which you relate in life. All right, so let's jump to the office of priest. Well, before we do that, are there any questions about the office of prophet? I'm I'm serious. If you have a question, ask it. It's okay. We're Presbyterian. I know this doesn't happen very often. Nothing? No one? Bueller? All right. If you come up with one later, let me know. Um, All right. Hebrews chapter 2 Verse, verse 17, and then reading through chapter 3, verse 1. 
this, we're taking up the subject of the office of the priest, the ordained, consecrated, anointed office of the priesthood. I should point out, Hebrews is in the New Testament, uh, but it, it's looking and explaining the way the Old Testament relates to Jesus in, in much of this, this body of literature. So that's what we're, it's what's going on. But hear what it has to say here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, we're talking about Jesus, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So the New Testament author of the book of Hebrews clearly saw Jesus as fulfilling the Old Testament office of the priesthood. So you have him fulfilling the Old Testament office of the prophet, and now the priest. So here's the question, what is a priest? What is this Old Testament office, what's the definition of it? It's very simple. A priest exists to offer sacrifices to atone for the sins of God's people. There's a little bit more to it than that, but that is the fundamental, most important role or place or calling of the priest in the Old Testament. To offer sacrifices, this means that that they would take an animal of various kinds and literally put it to death before the altar and then burn part of its remains on the altar of God. So the priests were grill masters. I'm not being flippant when I say that. They, had a, they literally had a grill in front of the, the temple, and they would offer sacrifices. There would be blood on the ground. They would put some of the blood in a little uh, thingy. There's a word for that. And then they would fling it around. Right? There's blood everywhere. This is a messy business. It's a messy religion. But these... What? Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. <laughs> um, so what was going on was very simple, that God was per- putting in place a perpetual reminder that the wages of sin is death. And because he loves us, he's going to provide through the death of another a way for us to find forgiveness for our own sins. And so every Israelite was, was engaged in this process through uh, their family head who would take that sacrifice on behalf of everyone in their household and give it to the priest, and the priest would perform the sacrifice, burn what was necessary to burn on the altar, and then they would actually take and eat portions of it. You'd get some of it back. The priest would get some as sort of his portion um, And then some of those portions were designated for only God would consume them in fire and smoke uh, on the altar. So, messy business, crazy business, but a very important one. And Jesus comes along and fulfills the office of the priesthood in his own life and ministry. A priest offers sacrifices to to atone for the sins of God's people, and we 
are called to accept Christ's sacrifice, his death, for our sins. Yes, ma'am. That's a legal term that just basically means to make payment for. Okay? So, yeah. We'll just keep it simple. Is that good? All right. I do have a lawyer in the room. You got a better definition for propitiation, Jack? Pretty good. All right. Okay. Good question. It's a big word. Anything else? Anyone? Anyone? All right. We move on. Now we're going to take a look at this idea of Jesus as fulfilling the anointed office of the king. And we're going to use a passage that was written by the Apostle Paul to one of his um, mentees, Timothy, as he's trying to help Timothy kind of frame the significance of who Jesus is and the ministry that Timothy is engaged in. These are some of Paul's words to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who is who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Those, brothers and sisters, are strong words. Those are very loaded words. And here is Paul's articulation of the kingship of Jesus, of the fact, the truth, that Jesus is the eternal king. He is the fulfillment of all the weak kings in the Old Testament who sort of pointed to this idea of God's sovereignty and authority, but failed so miserably most of the time. And here is Jesus, the one, the true, the only, the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen and amen. So here we see Jesus portrayed by the Apostle Paul as a king. A king is someone who represents God's sovereignty and salvation to his people. Bill. Yes. They they don't sound like Jesus? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, yes, so, so... Yes. So I'll try to, for anybody who's watching online, I'll try to summarize the observation that Jesus being unseeable light, unapproachable light, unseeable by anyone, doesn't seem to fit what we know about Jesus, who was actually human. And, and you see this conflation in Paul 
Sometimes he's leaning into the humanity of Christ, and sometimes he's leaning into the divinity of Christ. And here, he is, he is solidly stepping into the realm of demonstrating that Jesus is God. Right? So he's, he's got to do both. And we can look at Paul in other places. He left us a, quite a large body of work. And we can see that he, he brings out and develops the humanity of Christ in other places. But here, as he, as he starts rolling... Um, and it's important to remember when you're reading Paul, he was legally blind. So he, he didn't usually write in his own handwriting. If he did, he had to use really big letters and he wasted a lot of paper, which was really expensive. So he used a guy, he knew a guy who could write, and he would just dictate his letters, most of them. And so sometimes he just gets on a roll. And I could just imagine this, this guy trying to keep up. Like, hey, 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 say that again? What? Slow down. And so here, I think you clearly can see an example of that. The Apostle Paul just gets rolling. Um, You know, our Lord Jesus Christ, and I'll skip, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he just, he's just like, you can see his mind just rolling into the divinity of Christ here, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So part of what's important here, there was a place in in the temple, inside the Holy of Holies, that no one ever got to see. Um, And there was one priest, the high priest, who could go in once a year and sprinkle some blood, kind of in the dark, and... That is sort of what Paul is drawing on here, this, this separate holiness that is not ours. It's, it's not immediately available to us, and the beauty of Christ is that he makes that holiness and righteousness available to us in his grace, in his forgiveness. Yes, sir? It could, he, could, he could be talking, I mean, it's, it's Christ not just before, but always, right? And so he didn't lose that. He did set it aside, Paul tells us in Philippians, I believe it is, um, but he didn't lose it. And, and so he is eternally the one true God and became of human flesh at the same time. It's a, it's a miracle, it's a mystery, it's mind-blowing. But suffice to say that a king is someone who represents God's sovereignty and salvation over his people. And uh, I'll just read to you um, real quick. From This is, this is no extra charge. From 1 Samuel 10.1, um, there's an anointing of a king that happens here. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So in the anointing, there are these two elements of expectation, sovereignty and salvation. That that's that's the two ideas that the king represents. Sorry for that. It's a good one. Um... What are we supposed to do with that? We, as God's children, are to honor Christ's claim 
over each of our lives. There's, there's my will, and then there's usually way over here God's will. And accepting Christ as Savior is a good thing. And that's a relatively easy thing, I think, because it's free grace. Accepting Christ as Lord is a much longer wrestling match, at least for me. It takes a lifetime. And there is this element that I am called into as a child of God to surrender myself to the authority of Christ. If his word tells me that something is wrong, I have to learn to live with that. If his word tells me there's something I need to do that is right and I don't want to, I need to learn to accept that. So this idea that Christ not only fulfills the Old Testament office of king, but that he lives in that place of my king in my life where I am surrendered to his authority, to his will, to his sovereignty. And when we can do that collectively as a church, when we're all doing that together, there's harmony. When I get selfish, it breaks down pretty quick, right? Um, and it's true for all of us. But this, these are the ways in which not only did Christ fulfill the offices of prophet and priest and king, but then he turns them around and delivers them to us to, to be his prophet and his priest and to come under his kingship as members of his kingdom, submitting mutually to his will, to his word, to his love. And so... I want to pick up on, on one element of that, uh, the role that Paul got on in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he says that Jesus dwells in unapproachable light. This idea that the one, the anointed one, who fulfilled the office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king, is at the same time the light of the world. Listen to these words from the Apostle John. This is what God wants for you this Christmas. John says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life that beautiful contrast between the one who dwells in unapproachable light and then who makes himself the light of the world for us to be able to see the truth, the hope, the love of God eternal. We are called to step into that light, to walk in the awareness of who Christ is, what he has fulfilled, and what that means for us individually, and corporally, um, to literally walk in the light of his love. There, in that light, it's just like any time you, you turn a light on, uh, there's all kinds of things you can now see that you couldn't see before. And if you're, if you're filling in blanks, you have to pick one. All right? you, just, you just get one today. There's lots of options. And you may come up with an option that's not on my list. 
But here's what you find when you step into the light of Christ, the light of the world. You find grace, forgiveness, direction, light, joy, power, life, and much more, right? Which of these are set before you today? What do you need from your Savior? That's your answer. And in his immortal, eternal, vast capacity to fulfill his word, he can give you one thing and give someone else something completely different and just continue to fill and renew and, and redeem us, even from ourselves, that this God, who became flesh, who took upon himself the punishment that our sins deserved, and who went to that cross and laid down his life, that he came up from that grave in an explosion of light and hope and glory so that we can live in the light of his love. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your word and we confess there are parts of it that don't always make sense and that um, we can't fully get our minds around. And that's okay. Just help us to get our hearts around who Jesus is, what it means that he is the anointed one, that you have chosen to bring grace and forgiveness to the hearts of your people. We thank you that he represents your word to us, that he represents your provision of forgiveness for our sins, that he represents your authority and your salvation to us, that he is our prophet, our priest, and our king. Lord, Help us to live in the light of that love, that power, that grace, that truth each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.